0: Good afternoon. It is a joy to be here today. Um, Anna and I were concerned that it may not have been legal for us to to gather with the saints today, but we're thankful uh, that Pennsylvania put in an exemption for travel quarantines, uh, so we feel more comfortable about being here with the the brethren. And we're very thankful for the spiritual family that we have, for God's design that we're able to build up and encourage one another. I was blessed with the opportunity this past week to preach the funeral of my grandmother. And by God's grace, the grief that we felt was overshadowed by the great gratitude that we had of the hope that she has beyond the grave. This time eight years ago, my grandmother was not a Christian. Um, At the age of 90, my mother had had many, many conversations with her about her relationship with the Lord, and she viewed herself as a good moral person. She, in fact, did from time to time uh, attend church services, really as more of a social activity. But she had never obeyed the gospel. She had never given her life to the Lord and had her sins washed away in baptism. And so, as my grandmother was, was about 91 years old, My mother sent her a letter that ended up leading to studies and conversations that caused her to eventually uh, be pricked in the heart by the gospel and give her life to the Lord at 91 years of age. Most times that I I preach, I try to come up with my own outlines, but today uh, my my mother wrote my sermon outline. Uh, We're we're going to uh, today uh, allow the, the letter that my mother wrote to my grandmother uh, to be the basis of our, our study together. I may have shared this in the past with some of you, uh, but I hope that this will be helpful to us in thinking about reaching the resistant heart. Uh, I want to ask for, for the people that are here in person, uh, if you will be willing to, to raise your hands uh, and, and keep your hand raised. How many people here Have living parents that are not Christians? How many people, and you can keep your hands raised, how many people have a sibling who is not a Christian? Maybe a a child or a cousin, uncle, aunt. Okay, most everybody has their hand raised. You can go ahead and put them down. We all have people in our lives that we may be very close to, close friends, neighbors who are not in a right relationship with the Lord, who have not obeyed the gospel, and maybe we have many times tried to share the gospel with them. Today, what I hope we can do is renew our hope that our loved ones can be reached with the gospel. Many times when we have tried time and time again, we get discouraged and we think, well, it's, we, we've done what we can. I hope we can motivate one another to renew our efforts in reaching out to those whom we love and i want to give some biblical principles for how we can touch the hard-hearted some principles that have proven effective in my own family and i'm not saying that if we approach our loved ones the right way that that all of them are going to be softened by the gospel that all of them will turn to the lord but i to i want to encourage us to do everything within our power to soften their hearts, to grow in our ability to reach them, and never give up in sharing the gospel with those whom we love. Firstly, we need to lead with love. Uh, In the letter that my mother wrote to my grandmother, she started by saying, I love you enough that I'm willing to risk your displeasure by bringing up this topic. This is not the first time that my mother had brought these things up and it caused tension in their relationship. At times, at times it had been dropped for months or even years. But she wrote this letter, making it very clear that the reason she was bringing it up once again was because of the love that she had for her. In fact, later in the letter, she says, it brings tears to my eyes when I think about how much I treasure you. Brethren, love must be our motivation in reaching out to others with the gospel. It must drive us to talk to them, even at risk to causing tension in our relationship. Proverbs chapter 27, verse five and six tells us, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. The world convinces us that, that love is never going to do anything that might hurt somebody's feelings, that might cause tension. But in fact, love many times requires us to do hard things. Is it loving to leave a splinter in your child's hands because it might hurt to take it out? Is it loving for a doctor to hide from the patient the fact that he has cancer because the news is going to be devastating? Love hurts sometimes. The surgeon has to create some pretty deep scars at times, to save the life of his patient. Love demands that we not turn a blind eye to the spiritual condition of those whom we love, that we don't turn a blind eye to the fact that they are dying in sin in danger of eternal separation from the Lord. Love will keep us from pretending like nothing's wrong. Love will lead us even to tears on their behalf. It will drive us to do everything in our power to bring them to the Lord. And as we talk to them about the gospel, our love needs to be abundantly evident. It needs to be obvious in the way that we approach them. They should have no doubt that love is the reason that we are bringing this up. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4, as Paul talks about some of his very difficult words that he had written to the brethren at Corinth, He says there in chapter two, verse four, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Paul is is in inward anguish, even being brought brought to tears because he loves them. And he says some very difficult things, but he doesn't wish to make them sorrowful. Uh, he wishes to make his, his love evident to them. He wishes to build them up, to help them be who God wants them to be. You may have heard it before, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It needs to be very evident that we love those whom we are reaching out to, we need not to be ashamed to express a deep and sincere concern for their souls, to wear our hearts on our sleeves as we talk about these things. Because unfortunately, sometimes when we've talked to somebody about the gospel again and again, we we begin to lead with frustration. We begin to to lead maybe with a, a pride to prove that we're right and they're wrong. We need to make sure that instead of acting out of frustration, that we speak in such a way um, to make our love evident. Proverbs 15 and verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In Colossians 4 and verse 6 we read, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person seasoning our speech with grace, seasoning our speech with love and gentleness and humility and compassion. You know, when you think about seasoning your food with salt, there, there is certainly such a thing as too much salt, right? When it comes to seasoning our speech with grace, as long as we are not compromising the truth, as long as we are still saying what needs to be said, I don't know that there is too, uh, a thing is too much grace. In the way that we approach something, We need to be as gracious, as gentle, as loving, as compassionate as possible. That that love might soften the heart. That they might realize that we're not saying these things out of some desire to to wound them. That we're not saying these things uh, to to show them that they're wrong and we're right. We're saying these things because we genuinely care for the internal well-being of their soul. But along with that... We need to make sure that we show them the why before the how. In my mother's letter to my grandmother, she says, Since going to heaven is the very most important thing we have to deal with in this world, how can I not approach you, one that I love so dearly, and beg you to study it again carefully? Why? Why should we talk about these things? Because going to heaven is the very most important thing we have to deal with in this world. If we expect our loved ones to listen, we have to give them a clear and compelling why. Sometimes we start trying to teach someone the gospel with the assumption that they already see their need for it, or with the assumption that they already understand its importance the way that we do. You may have heard uh, it said before that the most important question that somebody can ask is what must I do to be saved? But brethren, I think there's a more foundational question that we need to be asking. And that's why do I need to be saved? Because if we don't answer that question, then nobody's going to want to ask the question, what do I need to do to be saved? I need to understand my need for salvation. I need to understand why this is something that I should even be concerned about. Why this is something that is worth talking about. And so instead of just focusing on the how in our efforts of evangelism, let's take some time to focus on the why. Remember in Acts chapter 2, as Peter preaches the first gospel sermon, at least uh, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, on the day of Pentecost, How much time does Peter spend in that sermon on the how? Well, really, at least in what's recorded there, just one verse. Verse 38, where he talks about their need to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. But you know, that entire sermon, all the verses leading up to that, was bringing them to a point of asking men and brethren, what shall we do? Here, what Peter had preached up until that point helped them see why there was a need to respond. And so we see there in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, as Peter reaches the end of his sermon, notice what he had been driving at. He says in verse 36, "...let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We need to recognize that the gospel is not just telling people our response to the gospel, right? Yes, we need to get to the response, but that's not the entirety of the gospel. The gospel is showing them Jesus, is showing them what our sins have done to him, showing them who he truly is. So we need to make sure that we focus on the why. The scriptures don't just have the power to instruct and inform us. They have the power to convict us, to reprove us, to prick our hearts and soften our hearts. And along with this idea of showing the why, we need to stress the universal need of salvation. In in the body of the letter that my mother wrote, she writes this. Picture, if you will, everyone in the world in one big room. Everyone is there, no matter how good or how bad they have been. Hitler is there. Mother Teresa is there. Everyone from the most vile to the most giving and upright. They are all in the same room. They are all in the same condition. They are all sinners in need of a Savior. This is the why. We need salvation because there is something to be saved from. The world does not value the statement, Jesus saves, until it understands what they need to be saved from. Salvation has no significance if there isn't something that we need deliverance from. We need to make sure that people understand sin and its eternal consequences. Salvation isn't something just some people need either. It is something that all people need, no matter who you are, Hitler or Mother Teresa. Some of the teenagers might have heard me use that illustration of Hitler to Mother Teresa. This is where it comes from. My mother herself, speaking of this type of, of, of measurement of our, our righteousness or wickedness, But we need to learn to not measure ourselves by the world's standard. Not from the standard of Mother Teresa to Hitler, but by God's standards. How he sees the world. And from his eyes, it doesn't matter who we are. We have broken his perfect image. Look in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Here we see the world from God's perspective. It says in verse 9, What then? Many people, as we read that, our gut reaction is, well, wait a second, I know some pretty good people. I think I'm a pretty good person. But it's because we're measuring by the wrong standards. From God's perspective, from his standard of goodness, of righteousness, of his perfect character, his image that he created us to reflect, each and every one of us have not lived up to that. We've taken his perfect image and we've ruined it, we've broken it. And so in God's eyes, it doesn't matter who you are. You're all in this room, sinners in need of salvation. In Romans 3, verse 23, we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the standard. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Think about it this way. No matter how neat and hygienic you are, you cannot be clean without the power of soap or some cleaning agent. And if you've gone your entire life without coming in contact with the power of soap, you're probably not going to smell too great. No matter how good and kind you strive to be, you cannot be righteous without the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. And if you have gone your entire life without coming in contact with the cleansing power of Jesus, you are in a dire condition spiritually. Many times when we look at prospects for evangelism around us, we we sometimes look for really good moral people. We think, oh, they would make a really good Christian. brother." that's not how it works. The gospel isn't for good people. The gospel is for people that recognize that they're not good. That they're sinners in need of a savior. And so the more good that I think I am, the more that the gospel needs to shake me up and help me realize, no, I'm a sinner in need of salvation. We can't interest someone in salvation until they can clearly see what it is they need to be saved from. Brethren, baptism is not something that good people do. Baptism is something that bad people do who want to become good. We need to recognize our need for the gospel and our need for salvation. We need to stress that universal need of our brokenness and help even our good moral, by the world's standards, friends and family to recognize the true condition of our souls without Jesus and from there, we need to emphasize the singular solution. My mother goes on as she talks about this room with everybody in it, from Hitler to Mother Teresa. She says, this room has many doors. She talks about doors to, for the Muslims and the doors of the Hindus and the doors of the Roman Catholics. She says, a lot of different people have chosen lots of different doors. I would imagine most of us think we have chosen the right door the right way to salvation. But there is only one door, one way to salvation. You know, many people throughout the world recognize the need for salvation. Uh, They recognize human failure uh, and seek out some solution to, to solve that problem. But many feel that there are many different ways to handle that many different paths to salvation and we each just have to find what works for us you have your religion and i have mine you have your truth and i have mine and we'll all meet in heaven in the end uh you know as long as we're trying to be good people well we'll god will save us but then that's not the message of the gospel the gospel is exclusive My mother goes on to quote some scriptures in her letter. John 14 and verse 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There are not many ways. There are not many truths. There's not many ways to life. There is one way. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. Acts 4 and verse 12, Peter says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is through Jesus and it is in Jesus that we find salvation. There is no other door. There is no other way. There are not many paths. There is one. And as the gospel is exclusive, truth is exclusive. Jesus can't both be the son of God and be nothing more than just a good moral teacher. It's either one or the other. Baptism cannot both be necessary and unnecessary for salvation. The Pope can't both possess divine authority and just be a human ruler purveying the uh, doctrines of men. And so we need to recognize that uh, if we differ on things that, that apply to our eternal salvation, our relationship with the Lord and what God's will is of our lives, but we can't both be right on that. We need to get serious about seeing what God has said. Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. If you want to turn over there in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7 and verse 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There are not many paths. There's a broad way that leads to destruction. But the way that leads to life, Jesus says, is narrow. And there are few who find it. If that's the case, then we need to get serious about making sure that we are on that path. If there are many paths to God, then discussing spiritual things is really not that important. But if there is only one narrow way, and only few who find it, then discussing spiritual things is of utmost importance. As my mother said, it's the very most important thing we have to deal with in this world. And so after having recognized the universal need of salvation, the singular solution. We need to challenge honest evaluation. My mother says, you are in the same room with me and everyone else in need of our sins being forgiven. I believe you have chosen the wrong door. This is where she then says later, how can I not approach you one that I love so dearly and beg you to study it again carefully? If there is only one door, and we differ on what we believe that is, then at least one of us has chosen the wrong door. And if you care about me, and if I care about you, then that's something that we need to discuss, and we need to work through. This is where we get to the how. We've established the why, but how do we? experience this salvation how do we get on that narrow way uh, that jesus talks about later on in this sermon on the mountain matthew 7 verse 21 jesus says not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day many will say to me lord lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says that many on the broad way will think that they are on the narrow way. Many of them will think they are saved, uh, will call Jesus Lord even. But it's of the utmost importance that we make sure uh, that we are, in fact, treating Jesus as Lord that we are submitting to his will within our lives. How can we know that we're on the narrow way? Well, Jesus says, he who does the will of my Father. And God has made his will very evident to us. He has in his grace revealed to us exactly what we need to do uh, in response to him. And so that's why Bible study is important. A lot of people in the, in the world, many times we ourselves, when we approach Bible study, will think, well... Yeah, maybe that's for some people. You know, Maybe more academically minded people really get a lot out of that. No. If this is telling us what God desires of my life so that I can be in right relationship with Him, so that I can respond properly to His gift of salvation and grace, then it's of the utmost importance to each and every one of us. And the Bible is designed for self-examination. And James 1 James doesn't illustrate God's word as a telescope that allows us to explore all the vast uh, recesses of of the universe and ask a lot of big philosophical questions. James doesn't illustrate God's word as a microscope or a a magnifying glass that that allows us to uh, closely examine the lives of other people and be their judge. James illustrates God's Word as a mirror that we look into and challenges us to see where we stand in our relationship with God. And so as we study with those whom we love, and if we get to a point where we can help them see why it is that we care so deeply about talking to the, them about these things, and if we get to the point of bringing them to the Scriptures, our goal in that is not to come to them as somebody who is now holding the, the magnifying glass on them. What we're doing is we're taking the mirror and we're saying, here, this is what I've seen. I, I want you to look at it as well. And we're encouraging them to self-examine. It's not that we're the one who's going to be the judge of their hearts. It's not that we're the one who's determining their salvation, their standing with God. We're saying, this is the standard, and I want you to look at it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, Paul says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Paul says this is something that each and every one of us need to do constantly, that we all need to, to test ourselves with God's word. And we're, if that is our attitude, that's our approach to the scripture, and if that's very evident to them, then I'm first applying this to myself, that I can share that with them in a way that's not going to sound like, here, I'm the one who's standing in judgment over them, and I'm telling them exactly what they need to hear, and I'm in this position of authority. No, I'm a sinner in need of salvation. I'm in that room just like everybody else is. And yet by God's grace, he's given me this mirror and I want to share it with you too. So when discussing the scriptures, we have to make it personal. We have to make application. We need to force our loved ones to reach conclusions, not just about God and religion and church, but about themselves, about their own spiritual condition. And we're not reaching those conclusions for them. We're urging them to examine it themselves. God's word has the power to do that. But lastly, we need never to resign to rejection. Some of you may have lived with loved ones for 30, 40 years who have refused to listen to the gospel. And it may have caused tension in your relationship at times, and to keep the peace, you may have dropped the subject for a while. But as long as they still have breath, we must not give up. Because my mother didn't give up, I was able to preach my grandmother's funeral on Wednesday with a rejoicing heart at the hope that she has it's been eternity in the presence of the Lord, the source of all things good. You know, you might think at 90 years old, well, we, we've done all that we can do. But God, in his grace and in the power of the gospel, used my mother to reach her heart. And she surrendered her life to the Lord in baptism at 91. I want to ask you, if you're willing to, to Close your eyes and imagine something with me. I want you to picture that your loved one, whether it be your your parent or your child, your spouse, your sibling, uh, is on a riverboat, and you're on the shoreline. And on this riverboat, they're having a great time. There's a lot of things to amuse them and entertain them. But from the shore, you notice that the current is starting to pick up. And to your horror, you realize that they are heading for a steep waterfall. You yell at the top of your lungs to get their attention and draw them to the shore before it's too late. But they're having too much of a good time to be distracted by your screams. You start running along the riverbank, waving your hands. They glance over and they see you, but they just think you're making a big deal about nothing and go back to what they're doing. You throw out a life preserver for them and beg them to jump so you can pull them to shore. But they don't want to leave the party and get their clothes all wet. What would you do? Would you give up? Would you sit down on the shoreline and watch idly as they careen over the falls to their death? Or would you continue to reach out to them to your very last breath so that they might be saved? You can open your eyes now. Brethren, Jesus didn't resign to our rejection. He reached out to us with his very last breath. In Luke 13, verse 34, we read Jesus speaking to his people, saying, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not have it. Brethren, God's people had rejected him time and time and time again. You think from the very first day that he brings them out of bondage in Egypt. As they wander in the wilderness, they complain against God. They rebel against him. They refuse to do what he tells them to do. And even as another generation arises and they go into the land, you then have the period of the judges where everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. And then they finally have a, a king, and their very first king, doesn't listen to God, doesn't do what he says. And they have king after king after king after king who leads them into idolatry, who compromises with the, the pagan religions around them. And so God brings them into captivity to teach them. And after they've spent a great deal of time in captivity, he brings them back to the land and have them, has them rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls. And yet, what do we see at the very end of Nehemiah in the book of Malachi that we studied recently? Even then, God's people continue not to follow his ways. And so by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have corrupted greatly what God desired of them. And yet, in Luke 19, and verse 10, we read, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And even to Jesus' very dying breath, in Luke 23, verse 34, as he's hanging upon the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. To his very dying breath, Jesus reached out that these rebellious sinners might be saved. Brethren, we need to resolve in our life and with our loved ones, not to give up until God has given up. God continues to reach out, even today, to rebellious mankind. The passage that Christopher read for us in Second Peter talks about those who don't believe that Jesus is going to come again. You know, since the beginning, the world continues to turn. The sun rises, it sets. Uh, You know, nothing is going to happen. Jesus isn't going to come. He says there in verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, uh, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God hasn't forgotten. He's not slow about his promises. He said that he is going to come again, that Jesus is going to come and judge the world. He hasn't forgotten about it. Why is it that it's delaying so long then? Well, Peter tells us. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Brethren, the reason the sun rose this morning is because God still wants somebody to be saved. That's why you and I are still here. That's why the world is still turning. And so let's stop wasting the time that God has given us, thinking that this life is just about us. No, the reason that we're here today is because God still desires somebody to be saved. Maybe it's your parent, maybe it's your child, maybe it's your sibling that he's still reaching out to, are you reaching out to them? Brethren, the gospel can change hearts. We need to be willing to be tools in God's hands to spread that news to our loved ones that their hearts might be softened. How does this message apply to you today? What do you see in the mirror? Will you act upon it? Or will you leave this building and forget all about it? I hope that today you've been motivated and equipped to reach out to your loved ones once again with the gospel. But maybe you recognize that in the illustration we gave, you're not on the shoreline. You're on that riverboat heading towards the falls. Brethren, today... Jesus is calling out to you, and we are calling out to you with the gospel to be saved. Life is not about the journey. It is about the destination. As we stood by my grandmother's grave on Wednesday, it became very evident that the the hope that life is about the journey is very empty hope. Because that journey is going to come to an end. We need to look forward beyond this fleeting existence to where our souls are going to spend eternity. And if you recognize that you have not responded to the gospel, Jesus died. He continued to reach out to you to his very last breath that you would not have to be separated from him for all eternity, but that you could spend eternity dwelling in the presence of God, the source of all things good. Do you have that hope today? If you don't, Won't you change? Won't you be pricked by the gospel? Won't you surrender your life to Jesus? If there's anything that we can do to help you in your relationship with the Lord, if you need to make some sin known, uh, if you need to commit your life to the Lord for the first time, we want to offer you that opportunity. Uh, And if there's any way that we can help you in reaching out to your loved ones, uh, we're here to equip one another in that. We're here to help one another in that. Let's all think more seriously about that. Uh, And let's help one another in that endeavor. If there's any way we can help you today, if you'd like to make it known, we ask that you'll come forward as we stand and sing.